Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 1. We're going to be there uh, this morning uh, looking at a few verses that we're going to, we're actually going to take a look at them in much more detail in the new year. John is the, the next study that we're going to go through together during our preaching time on Sunday mornings. It's going to take us through the entire year, 2014. We want to get a little sneak preview this morning by looking at what John has to say about the coming of Christ into the world. Um, there are a lot of factors. It's almost cliche to say this, but I'm still going to say it anyway. There, there are a lot of factors that work against us coming to a deep appreciation of Christmas. Now, there's the familiar critique, right? The one that you might call the Charlie Brown critique of commercialism, busyness, you know, the things that the season has become that sort of crowd out the religious significance of it, of Jesus coming to us. And for all the clicheness of that critique, it's true. Like, it's true in me. I think a lot of times you hear about the problem of taking Christ out of Christmas as a problem that the world has. Oh no, what will we do if the post office won't put up a manger scene on their, on their lawn? But I'm much less worried about the problem that's from out there, people taking Christ out of Christmas, than I am about what I see in myself every Christmas season, including this one. I'll just be honest. If I'm honest, I, I get more excited a lot of times about what I'm giving to people or what I'm going to get from people than what Jesus gives me. I'm more focused on the fun I have with my family, looking at lights and watching the Grinch or whatever, than I am at celebrating Advent together on Sunday evenings. And even, if I, even though I do genuinely enjoy those times of worship together, this has been a sweet year on that front. If you just look at the amount of time that my family spends sort of celebrating the cultural aspects of what Christmas has become versus the time we spend reflecting on Jesus and His coming, well, you, you see right there what we value. It's a problem in me just as much as in anybody else, that's for sure. But that's not actually the problem I want to talk about today. I mean, there's a sense in which I think Christmas has become what it's become. And if Christmas is about more than the birth of Jesus, I think that's fine. Cultures have beautiful celebrations of joy and happiness and hope. Cultures all over the world, they do it in different ways. And Christmas has kind of become that for us. It's about more than just Jesus' birth. The season is also about family and friends and giving. And I think that's fine. Christmas is not some sort of holiday established in John chapter 1 that's supposed to be celebrated in just this way. Now, there's a couple other things that bother me more than the sort of main critique of the busyness and the commercialism. There's a couple other barriers that I have, that I see in me, that I want to reflect on this morning to really appreciating the significance of Jesus coming. And whether, whether it's attached to this particular holiday or not, there are two major problems I see in my ability and probably in your ability to read the story of Jesus' birth and to have it land on us in the way that it should. The first one, the first problem, is how hard it can be to understand the significance of the story, to get it sort of in our, in our heads, to understand it, internalize it. I think, I think there are a couple things that, that make it difficult to understand. I mean, there, one of them, and, these, and these, these two things are kind of ironically almost opposite of each other. There's, there's on the one hand, this just a familiar story, so familiar that it, it kind of feels like other stories that we read during this time of the year, right? There's, there's this melding almost of the Rudolph story and the 
Charlie Brown story and the Grinch story with the Jesus story. And, um, and they're all this very familiar. They're all the things that we tell to each other at this time of year. And, and in that sense, we don't really break them down. We don't analyze them. We don't work to understand them. I mean, we see this even in our yard. We've been doing a lot, not in our yard, in our neighborhood. We've been doing a lot of uh, Christmas light viewing this year. It's really taken on in our household. And we, we have a little route that we take. Uh, at least every other night we're taking this route. And, uh, and one of the houses, like a couple streets over from us, has a manger scene set up. But the characters in the manger scene are Charlie Brown and Lucy as Joseph and Mary. Right? I don't know who the baby is. Maybe Snoopy. I don't know. I couldn't see it. But it, it kind of gets to the point. These stories are all just sort of... It, it, G, the story of Jesus coming is kind of melded into this sort of cultural... Stories that we tell at this time of the year, and it's very familiar and almost lost. We don't see the, the significance of it. But then if we, if we do cut through that familiarity and we actually do think about what the story says, well, then it becomes just shocking and abstract and just as, and even harder to understand. When you actually do think about the fact that the story says that God, the same God who made us, came into the world that he made, became like us, not just like us, became a baby, a baby who lived in the womb of a real woman, a real woman's body, came out of that woman's body as an infant. How do you get your mind around that? That's one of the main problems. It's tough to understand. And here's the other problem. I think this is a different problem. This, this problem shows up in each of us in different ways at different seasons. I don't know if it's one you're struggling with this year. But there is, a, there is a regular problem, I think, in, in, in all of us at different times in our lives where we struggle to see if Christmas is actually for us. Where, where Christmas can become, in our minds at least, a celebration that really only applies to people with the sort of sanitized lives of a Norman Rockwell painting, right? Where everything really is perfect. Where they have that perfect family, those perfect those perfect gifts for each other, that perfectly set table with all the soft lighting and the happy smiles with perfectly white teeth. And if your life is not like that, then maybe Christmas is not for you. I don't have the stats in front of me, but it's, I think we all have seen them, that Christmas is, is a time of, um, of, of heightened loneliness for most people who struggle with that, that there's more depression at Christmas than other times of the year. Because what you feel seems so in such stark contrast to the lives you see displayed in the advertising for different gifts or in the, 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 the movies that we love so much or in the paintings like Norman Rockwell's. And you start to think, this is just not for me. But what I, what I want to do this morning, really briefly, is reflect on a few verses out of John chapter 1 that get at both of these problems. The problem to, to really connect with and understand what it is that happened when Jesus came to us. And the problem to see what happened as for us. And here's a simple sentence. It summarizes, I think, the meaning of this passage, the meaning of the Christmas story. It summarizes what we want to be reflecting on this year. Simple sentence, two parts to it that are anything but simple. God became a child to make you a child of God. God became a child. He really did. To become, so that you could become a child of God. I want to read from verses 9 to 14 in John chapter 1. 
If you found that now, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read? This is the word of the Lord from John chapter 1. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We've already heard the Christmas story read in full this morning. What I want to do through this passage is take a look at John's sort of interpretation of that story. John is, John is a gospel writer, just like Matthew, just like Luke. He doesn't include a story of Jesus' birth. Instead, what he does is include this opening chapter where he talks about the significance of Jesus' birth. It's a great place to think about and to get our hearts ready to celebrate Christmas fully through John's eyes. I want to start with, with the first half of our sentence. Now, this is the one that really, where we really want to drill down on what happened when Jesus came to us and see if we can't, if, if not fully understand it. I think that's too much to ask for any of us. At least be prepared to see the significance of it. If we can't understand how it works for God to become a human, at least we can understand what the claims are and why they matter so much. Now, the Christmas, the Christmas story in each of the gospel accounts and really even in our cultural celebration of Christmas and all that it's become, it's become associated with words like peace, right? And joy and, and hope, like light and life. I think one of the reasons that Christmas has, has taken off so much in the last couple hundred years among people who don't even believe in Jesus, is that it, it calls on these words, these themes and ideas that aren't really distinctively Christian, right? Every religion is all about life and light. Every religion promises hope and peace. Any well-coached Miss America contestant knows that world peace is a good idea, right? And joy, joy is celebrated at this time of year in greeting cards written by who knows who at Hallmark. Joy is is used in advertisements to try to make you buy everything from cars to a certain kind of Christmas candy to, oh, I don't know, whatever this year's PlayStation is. The promise that joy will come if you get the right thing, right? These ideas aren't distinctively Christian, but here's what's distinctively Christian. Only Christianity claims that the key to peace to real peace between each other and in the world. That the key to a joy that won't fade, that the key to a joy that won't have to be purchased again next year, the key to life and to light is in the coming of God to us. Let me say it again. Let's add some concreteness to it. Only Christianity teaches that the key to these ideals is not, these, rather these ideals are not some sort of sanitized idea that you think about, talk about, celebrate, and then try to pull off by your own effort. 
the key to any meaningful peace, joy, or happiness, it's tied up with the concrete smells of hay or of dung. That peace sounds like a young woman screaming in excruciating pain. That joy looks like, joy looks like blood and gore. Now, I, I, I wouldn't pretend to explain the incarnation, right? It's always a mystery on so many levels, especially like how is it possible that the God who made everything, holds it all together, actually could come into what he's made, be part of what he's made. I, I don't think there's any headway to be made on that question. It's just a mystery. And if you can't get okay with mystery, you really can't get okay with Christianity. But I've been thinking about a different mind-boggling question this year. What must that have been like? Let's say it did happen. That God, the God who made us, actually became one of us. What must that have been like for him? I mean, it'd be one thing if he had come into this world as kind of a conquering hero with all sorts of superpowers. But to come in as a powerless baby. C.S. Lewis is one of the guys who often helps me put concrete terms on really big, abstract ideas. Here's, here's what he says in, in one passage in Mere Christianity about Jesus becoming, coming to us, God coming to us in Christ. He says that, that, that God the Son was born into the world as an actual man. Think about it. A real man of particular height, with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone. Apparently in England, stone is how you measure weight. I don't know, I've never heard that. The eternal being, he continues, who knows everything, who created the whole universe, became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. Just think about that. What must that have been like? A real baby who actually needed diapers to be changed for him. And it's one of the things that, that Christians early on had trouble making sense of. It's why some of the, I remember reading in graduate school, some of these old Christian texts that were rejected by the church because they weren't teaching truth, but they, they tried to add stories about what Jesus was. One of the things they really struggled with was understanding a, a, a Jesus, a God who could become an actual baby that was limited in all the ways that an actual baby would be limited. They couldn't imagine that. So they, they created stories about Jesus as a kid with superpowers. So some, one, of the, one of the books that I read, he was... He had superpowers to like shoot down birds with lasers he'd zap out of his fingers. Or, uh, and one of them, he turns some kid into stone who was picking on him. I mean, the early church could not imagine. They really struggled. They wrestled with this. The idea that God would be limited as a human in the same ways that we're limited. Now imagine what that must be like for the God who made all that is. Think of the instinctive reaction that we have to somebody thinking that we're less than we are. Right? You know, when you, when you hear yourself, have you ever have that experience where you hear yourself described by somebody and they're not quite getting it right? You know, your qualifications, your accomplishments, your title, whatever you're being introduced. That instinctive desire to sort of fix the record. It's even in kids. I mean, think about it. Any three-year-old will not stand to be called a two-year-old, right? It's instinctive in us. And yet, here God is laying aside a status that we, we really will never be able to imagine and taking on all the weakness that we know all too well. Lewis's imagery again helps me here. He says, if you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. Think about you 
now becoming a slug or a crab and you're an inch maybe towards imagining what it would have been like. But it's true. God became a child. Or as John says in verse 14, the word, the same word that earlier in this chapter we're told created everything that is, became flesh. That God chose to come to us as a child points ahead to so much about what his life would be like. That he chose to humble himself to that level, to to become a a helpless child who's got to be carried everywhere, who's got to have his diaper changed, who has to be fed. That he came that way instead of as some sort of magically empowered conquering hero from the get-go was a pointer to the, the rest of his life where he did without much of what we think we can't manage without. He did without the security and happiness of a home. He had no home. Think about how much of our energy and time, how much of our happiness, or at least the hope for it, is is bound up in where we're going to live and what it's going to be like. He did without a good reputation. He was mocked time and time again. Think about how important it is to us to be thought well of by other people. He refused fame and fortune, the thing that most of us aim our lives for in whatever it is that we do. He was misunderstood constantly. Ultimately, he was tortured and he was killed for us. God became a child and in that reality, we're pointed ahead to everything about his ministry. He came to do without the things that we think we can't live without. And he did that. Why? I think the the reason for his coming, which this passage points us to, is just as shocking. If we really really think about it, it's just as shocking as the, the, the claim that God has become one of us. Because what we're told is that God has come to make us, even us, even you, children of God. It might make more sense if there was something that was obviously desirable about humanity. You know, if we weren't so messed up, if our, if our history on the large scale and on the scale of each one of our lives wasn't so full of mess and muck, of, of failure, of pettiness, of sin and sorrow and weakness. But the text is full of clues that when Christ came, He came specifically for those who had nothing to offer him. It's in verse 9. The true light comes into the darkness. Light and darkness is a huge theme in John. We're going to talk a lot more about it next year. When he talks about light and darkness, the darkness piece is almost always a reference to the the sort of evil and sin and, and rebellion of the world. It's the world as it rejects God and his provision for us. It's to that darkness, to that world, that Jesus comes. Verse 9 says, he, this light enlightening everyone was coming into the world. And when John uses world, it's also a loaded term. World for him is not the globe. It's not all the different nations. World is this realm of, re, of, of rebellion against God. It's, it's the thing that's different from God's people. It's the, the other. When he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he's saying he so loved those who hated him that he gave his son for them the world is an affiliation right? it's, it's a side 
It's the side we've all chosen. And he so loved these people, the world, each of us, that God became a child. I wonder, I wonder if you feel like Christmas is not for you. It, it would be easy to see why you could think that, right? We've already talked about this. Christmas is a time when you're full of these advertisements that picture the perfect life and promise it to those who buy the product. But the effect of that is often to make us feel like Christmas is for people who have these lives that are within their grasp. And therefore, Christmas is not for me. But that's wrong. Christmas is a promise that Jesus has come to us, that he came for you, each of you, sitting where you're sitting, and that he knew exactly what he was getting when he came for you. It's a promise that Jesus knows all of your unclean thoughts. The God who made you, who upholds all that is, he sees right through you. He knows your resentment of other people. He knows your ingratitude, your envy, all of your fear. And He came for you. He knows everything that you hate about your body. And He came for you. He came for you despite your inability to control your anger towards your kids. He came for you despite the fact that you pridefully repeatedly compare yourself to other people. He came for you despite the fact that you can't muster happiness or contentment when you know you ought to be happy or content. He came for you knowing your brokenness and your pain better than you do. He knew what he was getting and he came for you. He came for damaged goods. He came for the sick who need a doctor. For all of those who are weak and desperate enough to know that they are helpless and alone. He came, in other words, for those who walk in darkness. He came for the world. And that means He came for you if you'll receive Him. And here's here's the amazing thing about this text and its promise to us. It's that He came. He, God Himself, the one who made us, became like us, even a baby. For all of us and all of our messed up lives and all of our pain and sin and sorrow. And that he came to us not to sort of throw us a bone, not to sort of buy us off with a little bit of aid, but to make us children of God. That's verse 12. To all who did receive him, that verse says, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this is not the image of a sort of wealthy philanthropist who's kind enough, genuinely kind enough to give away a lot of their money to help people who have problems in other parts of the world. Don't think of God coming to us as a sort of Bill Gates foundation sending millions of dollars to help out with AIDS in Africa. That's a great thing, right? Way to go, Bill. Make the best use of that money. But he's not, not denying himself something that he might purchase that would enhance his life in order to give that money away, right? Doesn't mean it's not a good thing. It means it's not costing him anything. He still goes to sleep in the same house he would have otherwise. His family still looks like it would have otherwise. What we we have here is, is God laying aside the comfortable mansion 
coming to live among the diseased, to take their infectious diseases onto himself. Literally in verse 14, when it says that he put on flesh and dwelt among us, the more literal way to, to, to translate that, maybe you've heard this before, is that he pitched his tent among us. He set up shop. He built a house. And even in his house, he didn't come to sort of make for himself slaves of those that he's living among. He could have. He has the right to. He didn't come simply as king to his subjects, though certainly he is a king and we are his subjects. He didn't come as the benefactor to a bunch of beggars to sort of throw them a bone every now and then and close his door at night. No, no, he came to pitch a tent among the diseased and bring them into his family. He came to make you a child of God. I love the language in verse 12. He came to give us the right to become children of God. It's a legal thing. He came to change our status. That means he came to make us heirs. He came so that he would take on everything that we owed. That would now become his. And he took on to, he, he puts onto us all of, the, all of the, the rights that Jesus had earned by his life. He came to make us heirs to everything Jesus has coming to him. He came to give us the acceptance and security that comes from family. He came ultimately so that we would never have to be afraid, never have to worry, never have to give in to guilt ever again. Now, there's only one sort of person whom Christmas isn't for. Unfortunately, John is full of references to this kind of person. One of the things we're going to see as we study John throughout next year is how often Jesus is rejected. Verse 12 talks about it right here. He comes to the world, the people that he made. He comes to his own people, the people of Israel, and they reject him. They don't want him. Christmas is not for those who are rich and famous and getting exactly what they want out of life. Right? It's not for the strong, for the self-sufficient. If you think of yourself as strong and self-sufficient, you're deeply mistaken. If you think Jesus won't receive you because you're not strong, because you're not self-sufficient, you're just as mistaken. Christmas is for everybody who will receive him. Jesus has come for you if you'll receive him. Father, we want to receive what you've offered us in, in Christ. We want to believe that it's true. We want to taste its truth and love its truth. There's a lot in us that pushes back against that. We know verse 12 says to us that those who receive you are born not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. We know, we read from that and from our own experience that we will not receive Jesus unless there's something in us that's changed by your power, unless we're first born again. And so what I pray this morning to you what I ask you for that no one else can give to us is a new birth. To see Christ 
as light and life, as hope and joy and peace, and to latch on to Him with everything that's in us. We want to receive Jesus. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.